Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who like woodwork and like spending a huge chunk of their Christmas budget on buying woodworking books. In today's episode, I just thought I'd take a quick whistle-stop tour through the books that I'm buying for Christmas, and uh, by the time I finished this podcast, I realized it was slightly longer than a whistle-stop tour. I'm easily convinced to buy something that looks exciting. And it's not lost on me that I've probably spent the better part of a Lee Nielsen plane on books this Christmas. So let's get going. I'll be giving you a brief view of the book, reading out the blurb where it makes sense, and telling you some of my thinking around why I'm getting it. Obviously at this point I haven't read any of the books, so there'll be detailed reviews to follow, but this is the kind of stuff I'm looking at for Christmas 2020. I think that while it's attractive to go out and buy books directly from Amazon or publishers or booksellers that are near you, um, you might also want to consider the second-hand market. So the first eight books I bought were from Thrift Books, and in total it came to $70, which I think is pretty good considering some of the books later on are in the $30, $40 region a pop. The first book is The Dunlap Cabinet Makers, A Tradition in Craftsmanship by Philip Zier. The Dunlaps of New Hampshire began making fine furniture in the mid-1700s. Their distinctive tables, chests, chairs and clock cases have their origins in the traditions that the Scottish-Irish brought to the New World. Many Dunlap works are now in museums where they are studied by scholars, but thanks to the book's detailed scale drawings and Donald Dunlap's construction notes, woodworkers can undertake the challenging proportions and ornament practiced by the Dunlaps. The 14 projects range from a simple knife box to an intricate tall clock and include a one-draw stand tea table and desk. The next book, also in a kind of historical context, is A Rural Carpenter's World by John Stilgo. Sometime late in 1868, New York farmer and carpenter James C. Holmes bought a new pocket diary for 1869. Now, over a hundred years later, this rare document of craft activity becomes the centre for an intensive study of rural carpentry in Holmes's place and time that unlocks an entire realm of significances. Holmes's day-by-day record places his actual craft, not just its visible artefacts, in the context of 19th century culture, society and economics. Wayne Franklin's impeccable wide-ranging research reconstructs Holmes' network at a time when the coming industrialization of the building trades had yet to have much effect outside American cities. His meticulous identification of more than 100 individuals referred to in the diary and his group biography of over 60 carpenters who practiced in the area until 1900 create portraits of real lives demonstrating the complexities of the social landscape after the Civil War. A rural carpenter's world makes carpentry a prism through which James Holmes and his work and his world shine. This graceful living record has immediate and lasting value for social historians students of vernacular architecture, and the build environment, and all those interested in westward migration and rural America. Although I've yet to review any books on the show officially, I'm a fan of James Cranoff, and I bought The Impractical Cabinet Maker, which is Cranoff on composing, making, and detailing for Christmas. James Cranoff's delicate lyrical cabinets have inspired a generation of wood craftsmen, as has his impassioned insistence that one do his very best work, no matter what. In this volume, first published in 1979, 
Kranoff invites the reader into his workshop, where he shares his techniques and uncompromising approach to craftsmanship, along with thoughts about his work and its place in the world. Photo sequences show how Krenov composes a cabinet directly in the wood, without dimension drawings. He also discusses working with shop-sawn veneers, the technique of fitting curved doors, and the problems of accuracy and mistakes. The book concludes with a detailed exploration of three furniture projects, a curved showcase cabinet, a writing table with drawer, and a chess table. The next two books might seem a bit strange. They focus more on wood than on uh, furniture making, but I think they look pretty interesting. The first I think was recommended by Chris Schwarz quite a while back in one of his blogs. It's called Oak, The Frame of Civilization by William Bryant Logan. Professional arborist and award-winning nature writer William Bryant Logan deftly relates the delightful history of the reciprocal relationship between humans and oak trees since time immemorial. For centuries, these supremely adaptable, generous trees have supported humankind in nearly every facet of life. From the ink of Bach's cantatas to the first boat to reach the new world, the wagon, the barrel and the sword, oak trees have been a constant presence in our past, yet we've largely forgotten the oak's role in civilization. With reverence, humor and compassion, Logan awakens us to the vibrant presence of the oak throughout our history and in today's world. The second book by Eric Ratkow is called American Canopy, Trees, Forests and the Making of a Nation. Eric Ratkow's deeply fascinating work shows how trees were essential to the early years of the Republic and indivisible from the country's rise as both an empire and a civilization. Among American Canopy's many captivating stories, the Liberty Trees, where colonists gathered to plot rebellion against the British, Henry David Thoreau's famous retreat into the woods, the creation of New York City's Central Park, the Great Fire of 1871 that killed a thousand people in the lumber town of Penshigo, Wisconsin, the fevered attempts to save the American chestnut and American elm from extinction, and the controversy over spotted owls and the old-growth forests they inhabited. Ratkow also explains how trees were of deep interest to such figures as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Teddy Roosevelt, and Franklin Roosevelt, who oversaw the planting of some three billion trees nationally in his time as a president. Never before has anyone treated our country's trees and forests as the subjects of a broad historical study, and the result is an accessible, informative, and thoroughly entertaining read. Audacious in its 400-year scope, authoritative in its detail, and elegant in its execution, American Canopy is perfect for history buffs and nature lovers alike, and announces Eric Ratkow as a major new author of popular history. Albert Sachs's book Fine Points of Furniture Early American is a classic. I bought the revised edition of the Classical Bible of American Furniture. It presents a thorough analysis through over 700 photographs and detailed text of the various elements of design, decoration, craftsmanship, construction, and finish of early American furniture. Each type is shown and discussed with three examples, good, better, best, and the relative merits and consequent value differentials of each are compared. It explains why superficially similar pieces of furniture of the same approximate age and scarcity, and possibly by the same maker, may vary considerably in their desirability and worth. It is a unique, indispensable guide for today's students, collectors, dealers and curators in judging and evaluating antiques. 
more than 100 types are discussed, and 675 examples are illustrated, including some of the most notable pieces. The ultimate reference, as important today as when first written in 1950. And I thought while I was getting that, I should also get the new fine points of furniture, early American, the good, better, best, superior masterpieces, also by Albert Sachs. An indispensable guide for collectors and dealers who want to compare and evaluate early American antiques. When Albert Sachs's Fine Points of Furniture, Early American was published in 1950, it established a new standard for evaluating American antiques. In his new book, Sack applies this standard to furniture pieces that have appeared on the market in more recent years, with full-color and black-and-white photographs. If you read the latest Mortis and Tenon, you would have seen Shopcraft to Soulcraft by Matthew Crawford, reviewed by Nancy Hiller. Recently, I had a wonderful interview with Nancy Hiller about her book, Making Things Work. In the course of that interview, we also superficially touched on another book of hers, English Arts and Crafts Furniture. The interview ended up being quite expensive for me. Two of the books that I ordered for Christmas are English Arts and Crafts Furniture by Nancy Hiller and Kitchen Think by Nancy Hiller, her latest books. So I'm planning on having kind of a Nancy Hiller month in January where I review all three of those books and publish the interview that I did with her. At the same time, I also went and bought Shopcraft a Soulcraft. We discussed a little bit on the show, and it certainly looks like a good book. Here's the blurb. A philosopher mechanic's wise and sometimes funny look at the challenges and pleasures of working with one's hands. Called the sleeper hit of the publishing season by Boston Globe, Shop Class a Soulcraft became an instant bestseller, attracting readers with its radical, and timely reappraisal of the merits of skilled manual labour. On both economic and psychological grounds, author Matthew B. Crawford questions the educational imperative of turning everyone into a knowledge worker, based on a misguided separation of thinking from doing. Using his own experience as an electrician and mechanic, Crawford presents a wonderfully articulated call for self-reliance and a moving reflection on how we can live concretely in an even more abstract world. English Arts and Crafts Furniture has the following blurb. What is Arts and Crafts truly? Arts and Crafts has come to be a name for a style of decorative arts, but just try to pin it down. It's a huge challenge, because it encompasses such a broad variety of work. Early designs such as those by William Morris seem more closely related to ornate Victorian interiors. Contrast these with Morris's straightforward designs inspired by medieval forebears and the austere elegance of chairs and built-in cabinetry by Voisy, or the bold simplicity of furniture made by Sidney Barnsley, never mind the clear Art Nouveau influences in much of Macintosh's work. English Arts and Crafts Furniture explores the Arts and Crafts movement with a unique focus on English designers. Through examination of details, techniques and historical context, as well as projects, you'll discover what sets these designers and their work apart from those who came before and after as well as gain a deeper understanding of the arts and crafts movement and its influence. Three complete furniture builds provide a glimpse into the breadth of ideals encompassed by arts and craft. Voisy's two-heart chair with its woven seat and sharp finials combines simplicity of form with an elegant uprightness. A striking sideboard design from Harris Liebes, one of England's largest furniture manufacturers at the turn of the century, was not just imposing, but affordable for a middle-class market. Gimson's hayrake table marries rural illusion, challenging joinery, 
and exuberant hand carving in a project that is a joy to build. More an expression of social and economic ideals than any specific design aesthetic, the arts and crafts movement encompassed a staggering variety of work. This book provides fresh perspective into an exciting moment in design history. And then the last book by Nancy, Kitchen Think. For two decades, Hiller made a living by turning limitations into creative, lively and livable kitchens for her clients. Her new book, Kitchen Think, is an invitation to learn from both her completed kitchen designs, plus kitchens from a few others, and from the way she works in her Bloomington, Indiana workshop. Unlike most kitchen design books, Kitchen Think is a woodworker's guide to designing and furnishing the kitchen, from a down-to-the-studs renovation to refacing existing cabinets. And she shows you how it can be done without spending a fortune or adding significantly to your local landfill. The first requirement is simply to think, Hiller writes. Where you are in life, what resources you have access to in terms of money, interesting materials or time, the architectural style of your home, and so forth. Yes, there are hundreds of pretty full-color photos of well-designed kitchens, which are organized into 24 case studies throughout the book. They range from the sculptural kitchens by Johnny Gray and Wharton Escherich to kitchens of a more recognizable form. But there's also a heavy dose of practical instruction. How to build cabinets efficiently, how to make a basic kitchen island, how to build a wall-hung plate rack, plus butt-saving advice that comes only from experience, like how to maximize space in inside corners, how to scrap cabinets and countertops in odd spaces, and how to make sure you've left ample space for hardware. All of this is built on a foundation of research into kitchens from the past. Hiller's historical perspective on design might just change your mind about what makes a good kitchen. It doesn't have to be walls of built-in cabinets. So what's the alternative? You just have to think. I've got a fascination with early furniture and carving, so I guess it's no surprise that Joyner's work by Peter Philansby is on the list. Forget what you think about 17th century New England furniture. It's neither dark nor boring. Instead, it's a riot of geometric carvings and bright colors, all built through simple constructions that use rabbits, nails, and mortise and tenon joints. Peter Philansby has spent his adult life researching this beguiling time period to understand the simple tools and straightforward processes used to build the historical pieces featured in this book. Joyner's work represents the culmination of decades of serious research and shop experimentation, but it's no dry treatise. Follinsby's wit, honed by 20 years of demonstrating at Plymouth Plantation, suffuses every page. It's a fascinating trip to the early days of joinery on the North American continent that's filled with lessons for woodworkers of all persuasions. If you like green woodworking, Joyner's work is a doctoral thesis on processing furniture-shaped chunks of lumber from the tree using hand, axe, fro, hatchet and break. If you're into carving, Peter dives into deep detail on how he festoons his pieces with carvings that appear complex but are remarkably straightforward. And if you love casework, Joyner's work is a lesson on the topic that you won't find in many places. Peter's approach to the work, which is based on examining original pieces and endless shop experimentation, is a liberating and honest foil to the world of micrometers and precision routing. The book features six projects, starting with a simple box with a hinged lid. Peter then shows how to add a drawer to the box, then a slanted lid for writing. He then plunges into the world of joint chests and their many variations, including those with a panelled lid and those with drawers below. 
and he finishes up with a fantastic little bookstand. Construction of these projects is covered in exquisite detail in both the text and hundreds of step photos. Peter assumes you know almost nothing of 17th century joinery, and so he walks you through the joints and carving, as if this was your first day on the job. Plus he offers ideas for historical finishes. What Peter doesn't provide, however, is detailed construction drawings of each piece with a cutting list and a list of supplies you need. As you quickly learn in the opening chapters, the size of the projects and their components are based on what you can harvest from the tree. There's immense flexibility in this method of work, but to help keep you oriented, Peter provides pencil sketches made by the wonderful Dave Fisher that explain the anatomy of each project, plus rough sizes that will help you plan out your work in the woods and at the workbench. If you're accustomed to CAD renderings, this will feel unfamiliar, but if you're brave, I think you'll find it a freeing way to build these pieces, which frankly look weird when built using contemporary precision techniques. Throughout the book, you'll have the voice of Follinsby to guide you. If you've ever heard him speak, you will instantly recognize the rhythm of the language and the dry humor. We took great pains to retain Peter's voice in this book, and I think we succeeded. When pressed, Shannon Rogers says The Chairmaker's Notebook by Peter Galbert is the best book he's ever read. Whether you're an expiring professional chairmaker, an experienced green woodworker, or a home woodworker curious about the craft, Chairmaker's Notebook is an in-depth guide to building your first Windsor chair, or an even better 30th one. Using more than 500 hand-drawn illustrations, Peter Galbert walks you through the entire process, from selecting wood at the log yard to the chair's robust joinery to applying a hand-burnished finish. And if you've never thought about building a chair, this book might convince you to try. Building a chair will open your eyes to ways of working wood that you might miss if you stay in the rectilinear world of boxes. Once you understand chair making, then odd and compound angles become child's play. You will know how wood works in a deeper way and how to exploit it. And you will gain access to an arsenal of open-ended tools, such as the draw knife, that will fundamentally change the way you work plus expand the shapes and surfaces you can produce. At 406 pages, Chairmaker's Notebook is an in-depth look at the craft from the hand of a professional chairmaker, teacher and artist. During the last 15 years, Galbert has developed processes, tools and ways of understanding joinery that have simplified the way people build chairs using hand tools. He has travelled the world to teach his techniques to other chairmakers and he spent more than three years drawing out every step of the process for the illustrations in Chairmaker's Notebook. The result is a book on chairmaking that starts with understanding a single stick you would find on a walk in the woods and takes you into advanced areas of the chair craft that no other book has ventured. I guess no Christmas is uh, complete without a book by Christopher Schwarz, and I've got Campaign Furniture. Campaign Furniture seeks to restore the style to its proper place by introducing woodworkers to the simple lines, robust joinery and ingenious hardware that characterise campaign pieces. With more than 400 photos and drawings to explain the foundations of the style, the book provides plans for nine pieces of classic campaign furniture, from the classic stackable chest of drawers to folding rookie chairs and collapsible bookcases. In addition to all that, campaign furniture contains the first English-language translation of André Rubeau's 18th-century text on campaign pieces, plus original drawings of dozens of pieces of British campaign furniture culled from original copies of the Army and Navy store's catalogues. Calvin Cobb, Radio Woodworker by Roy Underhill 
Roy Underhill of the PBS Woodwright's Shop has written what could be the world's first ever woodworking novel, Calvin Cobb, Radio Woodworker. It's a screwball comedy set in 1937 about a woodworker who heads the US government's Agricultural Broadcast Research Division. Along with his staff of four women, all severely injured World War I volunteers, Calvin studies broadcast seed, nutrient and amenable distribution technology and practice. That is, what happens when the poop actually hits the fan. But the four women are more interested in developing the world's first supercomputer, using abandoned punch card machines, and Calvin is more interested in woodworking. And in one particular woman, Catherine Dale Harper, host of the radio program Homemaker Chats. How best to woo her? Radio show. Grandpa Sam's Woodshop of the Air. It's an almost overnight sensation. For measured drawings, write to Grandpa Sam's and be sure to include a three cent stamp to cover the cost of duplication. But as Kelvin discovers, success breeds jealousy. A dangerous thing when one's enemy has friends in high places. Can Kelvin and his friends save the world through woodworking, one listener at a time? Perhaps, but first they'll have to save themselves from Nazis, the clutches of the FBI, bureaucracy, and wooden legs that break at inopportune times. Another book that I was lucky to pick up on Thrift Books is Classic American Furniture, 20 Elegant Shaken Arts and Crafts Projects by Christopher Shores. If you enjoy the satisfaction of making beautiful furniture, you'll be pleased with the projects in this book. Classic American Furniture offers 20 attractive pieces, all custom designed by Christopher Shores and the editors of Woodworking Magazine. Every project has been thoroughly planned, so it not only looks good, but it's simple to build. You'll also find simple hand tool techniques you can use to create a handcrafted look, skill building advice that will make you a better woodworker overall, special finishing techniques. Follow the advice in this book and you'll have the skills and confidence to create beautiful furniture every time. Last week, Shannon Rogers shared with us his Renaissance Woodworker episode 62, which was inspired by Jeffrey Green and American Furniture of the 18th Century. There were three books that he mentions in this podcast. Queen Anne Furniture, History, Design and Construction by Norman Vandal is the first. There wasn't much of a description on it, but it says the text contains photographs and 82 pages of measured drawings for chairs, tables and case furniture to help readers build even the most challenging pieces. Richard Bushman's book, The Refinement of America, Persons, Houses and Cities, is a lively and authoritative volume that makes clear that the quest for taste and manners in America has been essential to the serious pursuit of a democratic culture. Spanning the material world from mansions and silverware to etiquette books, city planning and sentimental novels, Richard Bushman shows how a set of values, originating in aristocratic court culture, gradually permeated almost every stratum of American society and served to prevent the hardening of class consciousness. A work of immense and richly nuanced learning, the refinement of America newly illuminates every facet of both of our artifacts and our values. The last book, which is a little bit expensive to get hold of, but I managed to find a second-hand copy at a reasonable price, is American Furniture, The Federal Period by Charles Montgomery. The incomparable Winterton Museum, a collection of beautiful and distinct Federal Period American furniture, is described and illustrated in this book, first published in 1978. Today's printing technology makes this book even more stunning, presenting beautiful photos of 491 pieces. The text explores the maker, place of origin, 
size materials, dimensions, details of design, and most importantly, an evaluation of the merits of each piece. It is a history of the entire process of furniture making in Federal America. This is a classic encyclopedia for Federal period furniture enthusiasts and a mine of information for everyone interested in the social and cultural history of the formative years of the United States. And at this point, feeling quite poor, I decided to stop ordering books. So I hope there's something in there for everyone, uh, maybe some inspiration or some ideas, or maybe just a memory jog of something that you've been meaning to put on your wish list. It'll give you some idea of what I plan on reading when I go down to the coast with the kids and family this Christmas for a break at the end of, I guess, what has been one of the most crazy years of my lifetime. I hope you're all keeping well, hope you find some great Black Friday sales, and I hope that you, well, keep reading. Keep reading.